Hello, everyone. We should we should take a moment, though, and pray for the 60 percent of our fellowship that's out sick right now as well. Um, there are so many people that are they call on the phone and they sound like they're an inch from death, you know, in the throat. So let's pray for them really quick and then we'll jump into our, our text. Lord, thank you so much for those, Lord, who are uh, you forced a Sabbath with. Lord, I pray that they would take that time wisely, that they wouldn't just spend it in rugby and football and so forth, but they would spend it, Lord, really in you. And then you would take this time and draw them close. And for every person here, Lord, let us truly hear your voice today. As you minister, Lord, minister deeply to us, I pray. And I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do, even in advance here. Lord, for all of the flock, be them here or elsewhere, bless them today, I pray. Let them know your love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Get to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. God willing, we will conclude it today. <coughs> and raise your hand if you need one. And again, Matthew, chapter 6. We pick it up on where we bounced to the end last time, which is in in chapter uh, 6, verse 19. Look at it with me, please. (coughs) Excuse me. Hopefully I won't be doing that much today. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add, One cubit to his stature. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Pray with me, would you please? (coughs) Excuse me. Lord, thank you so much for what you're going to do in this time. I do pray, Lord, that you would radically minister 
profoundly speak that you would today in this room cause every one of us to encounter you. You know where we're at. You know whether we're planning on encountering you or not. You know whether, Lord, we've built up walls or the road is straight, the valleys filled, the hills laid low. To our own hearts, Lord, you know. Here in this room now, divinely, profoundly, glorify yourself and speak to every one of us individually as well as corporately. God, let us hear you today. Let us know you today. Let us want you today. Let us embrace you today. Let us glorify you today. Let us serve you today. Let us enjoy you today. Let us be absorbed in you today. God, do your work. Let your word profoundly burst open and come alive. Color in the black and white. And may we have so much fun in your word now. We commit this time, God, just come upon me by the power of your Holy Spirit in such a way that you would use me as your mouthpiece to address us individually and corporately. Oh God, please now do your work. Redeem every second we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Jesus is now really given us the apex of the entire message. He spoke about us being blessed in certain circumstances. He walked us through essence and salvation through those first verses in five, speaking to his disciples. And then, of course, starts to tell us how we are to be different from the current religious establishment, which has become impotent, irrelevant, and inconsequential versus impacting. And with that, then, Jesus tells us about how we are now to be the salt. We are to be the light. And he tells us about what it looks like to have to be religious and still go to hell. That's really everything up to this point in, the, in this chapter. How you can give and how you can fast and or how give and pray and fast. And you can do all of that and still go to hell. Because Jesus tells the very people that he says that are actually demonstrating these things are sons of hell and make others that they evangelize much more sons of hell than themselves. You'll tell us that, by the way, when Jesus goes off on them in Matthew 23. Here now, Jesus is speaking to us, and he tells us that the fundament in everything, from 5 through 7, that Sermon on the Mount, really the core of the whole thing, <clears throat> the epicenter of everything is this point, what do you really treasure? And like it or not, you're going to treasure something. It's so important that the word for treasure, by the word, is the word thesaurus. You know what word we get from that? And the idea of that's supposed to be a treasury of words. The way that actually this first verse 19 reads, by the way, is it says, do not, do not literally thesorizo for yourselves, thesoras on earth. Do not, if you will, treasure up for yourself treasures on earth. Now he doesn't say here <clears throat> that it's a sin to have something. He doesn't say that what everyone needs to do is sell everything and live in a cave. The question is not what do you possess, the question is what do you treasure? If you were to stand before the Lord and you could take three things into heaven with you, what would they be? Would it really be the new iPhone 6 or 6S or 7, if that ever comes out? And what Jesus tells us is that you're really only going to treasure two different things. They all fit into two categories. They either fit on what is on earth 
or they fit in what is in heaven. On and in are our two options. That's it. On earth or in heaven. And it tells us here that Jesus makes really carefully clear that everything on earth is temporary. And he tells us that everything that we could possibly treasure on earth that is simply of this earth is temporary and destroyable or and or stealable. And there's our problem. He tells us that everything that we own here can be stolen. It can corrupt by moth or it can be corrupting by rust, which, of course, speaks of the gold and silver of the day. And, of course, today as well. And he tells us that you can treasure those things. But if you do, this whole message will be irrelevant. From the very beginning of it to the very end of it, it will be irrelevant. Because you'll still go, yeah, I felt like I've ticked my box. I'm going to go back out and get mine. And yet, I'll tell you, it's clear. If I could take three things with me, there's no doubt what they would be. It would be my wife and children. And what's interesting is, in this room, the only thing that is eternal are the people. The pews, your clothing, the, the sound system, even the bodies that you are in, or uh, that are upon you, if you will. They're temporary. And as you get older, hallelujah, you say that more. Praise God for the new model, the one that doesn't corrupt by rust or moth, if you will. Interesting, because he gives us four different things, and it's important to recognize in this <coughs> that what he tells us is that on the other side, though the things of this earth can be corruptible, the things of heaven cannot be. They cannot be stolen, they cannot be lost, and they cannot in any way degrade. You see, from the time of the fall of man in Genesis 3, the world has been subject to entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. That order goes to disorder. That was set in motion at the fall. That was death. A separation of relationship between God and man, for which then the earth has its expiration date. I found this interesting. Has there ever been a season in all of history since, if you will, the First World War, which would have looked like the end of the world? Let's face it. If we were in the First World War, it would have, it would have been easy to think that was Armageddon. But since then, has there ever been a time where more attention has been displayed on the end of the world? Well, you're aware of the fact it started, if you will, in Y2K, right? And Y2, some of you are old enough to remember that. We thought the world was going to end because we knew our toasters and microwaves couldn't possibly work when it flipped over to zero, zero. But then if you remember, just recently, 2012, do you remember the Mayan calendar thing? Remember that? People were going mental over that in 2012. And the reason was that they were looking at Mayan calendars, and the Mayan calendar, well, it just didn't go beyond 2012. So they were convinced that must be the end of the world. By 2013, it was the asteroids. Isaac Newton had predicted by the end of 2013, it would be, or so they would say, would be the end of it. By 2014, the Norse jumped in, if you will, with their whole mythology, with Ragnarok. On March 21st, it was supposed to be destroyed by asteroids, according to the scientists, just so you know that it wasn't just the religious fanatics or the mythological people. And the Nostradamus himself had actually said, if you will, in 2014, the world would end through the third sun, which many related to North Korea. In July 23rd, 2015, we're getting a little bit more to where we are today. The Daily Mail article, by the way, speaking about how sustainable is life, told us that the Angela Ruskin University Global Sustainable Institute. That's an easy one to say, right? Or if you will, R-U-Z. Anyways, S.H.I.E.L.D. was a lot easier. Anyways, Angela Ruskin, University Global Sustainability Institute, said that the end of the world actually got bumped up from 2050 to 2100. That should please you to know that. 
And the reason they said that was because of the amount of pollution that's being dumped into the sky, the erosion of the world as we know it. Of course, this year alone, do you guys remember the blood moons? The Shemitah? September 26th, where the asteroids were supposed to come and destroy, by the way. October 7th, just recently, the Herald Camping birth child, if you will, of the E-Bible Fellowship that said again that the world was going to be destroyed. So, you know, there was one picked out for us, too. September 30th, just recently, the entire London was supposed to be destroyed by an asteroid. I guess that never really happened. And again, we get to this. The problem isn't that people get caught into these things. The problem is that Christians do, in my opinion. So let me just give you a handful of very short verses, and we'll move into the rest of our text in regards to this area. First of all, it is important to note in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John told us it was the last hour. Jesus told us it was the last days. John, by the end of his life, a hundred years later, said it was the last hour. The church lived in a constant expectation of the Lord's coming. And that is important for me. Because people like to banter over doctrines, and yet Jesus told us that when you see things, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, they're like birth pangs. Now, the important thing about birth pangs is that birth pangs don't just all come at once. You get a handful of them, and they get in more intense, and they get more close together. And the closer together and more intense they become, the sooner the baby's going to come. Interesting, because when Jesus first came, Jesus dealt with the issue of man's curse, if you will, when it says in, in Genesis chapter 3, that the man would set his hands to the ground and it would produce thorns. On Jesus' first coming, it doesn't surprise me that my king would wear a crown of it at the cross to pay for that curse. But he also told the woman that her, she would experience greater grief in childbearing. Interesting, because according to the Thessalonian letters, it's evident that the second coming is related to a woman in childbirth. By the time it's done, God will wrap up the entire curse that he spoke of in Genesis 3. I get that. But hear me on this. The church always expected the Lord to come at any given moment. And he tells us that when the master comes, will he find his servants attending and being watchful or will he find them sleeping? And here's our problem. That the church is asleep today. They have no expectation of the Lord's coming. Now, 50 years ago, we were the numbskulls, right? We were the ones telling everyone the end of the world was coming, and the scientists were calling us mental. Today, the scientists are telling us the end of the world is coming, and we're the ones calling them mental. We should be the ones saying, it's about time you caught up with us. Here are some very fundamental points, though. In Matthew chapter 28, when he describes the end times, He tells us this, and you're probably aware of this in verse 36, but of the day and the hour, he doesn't just say day, but the day and the hour, not just hour, but the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. So when someone tries to give me the day, I know they can't be possibly telling you the truth, because no one knows. All I'm trying to do here is, if you will, trying to nonsense proof your eschatology. Eschatology just means the end times. We will go through the book of Revelation. And by the way, it's one of my favorite books. To me, it's the easiest book to teach through. I mean, there's some rough parts about looking at what happens, but it's a very simple book. Here, and I can understand why people don't read it, by the way, because it tells us it's the one book that's promised, blessed are those who read and keep it. I can see why the enemy wouldn't want you reading it, because you promised a blessing if you do. Well, the reason you'd be promised a blessing more than any is if you see your side on the side of the Lord. Well, hear me. Nobody knows the day or the hour. So when some group 
comes up with some cockamamie idea because another blood moon or because the Mayan calendar is going to end or whatever. No one's going to know the day. I am sure that that would be a day I would not expect him. But it does say this. And hear me on this. Matthew 27, or 24, verse 27. He tells us, as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, this is simple. Why did God pick lightning? Why didn't he just say, as the wind blows, or as the rain falls, or as the earth quakes? Why lightning? Because regardless of how brutal the day is outside, whether the mud is sliding and the rain is pouring or the snow is falling or whatever the case is, regardless of how tempestuous the day is, when lightning flashes, everybody sees it. When Jesus comes, it will be without doubt that he's come. And it actually says, then if they say, there he is in the desert or there he is in the inner room, Jesus literally says, don't believe them. Hear that again. If they say, there he is in the inner room, or the upper or inner room, or there he is in the desert, don't believe him. So when there are people on the radio that tell you you need to quit all the churches and just listen to them and give all your money to the guy on the radio, or if somebody comes out with this publication for the 15th time, actually it's the 6th time that they would predict the coming of the Lord, and, and, you know, and he doesn't show up and they say, well, he did show up, but we weren't ready, so we went into the inner room, could, he have picked, could they have picked a better place to say than that? It's exactly the place Jesus said, don't believe him if they say it. It's amazing that people still follow that. When Jesus comes, nobody is going to doubt it. When he comes, it isn't like someone's going to go, why do you think that was? Which gives me a problem, by the way, when we see a lot of these sort of rapture movies. I'm a full rapture guy, by the way. I fully believe in any given moment the Lord is going to come back. I live that way. And by the way, that inspires me to live in a passionate lifestyle towards the Lord. It drives me to that. And there are times where I just kind of, you know, I'm just so excited about the Lord. I want to jump just in case so I could kind of cut in the queue and get ahead of you. But anyways, but I do know this. That when Jesus comes, when you watch those movies, you watch them, it almost seems like, have you ever seen these? Like a woman's cooking and a guy's flying and all of a sudden the baby's gone. And then they're like, what happened to my baby? Or the butter's melting on the sidewalk. And what happened to the person? It's like when the Lord comes back, it isn't just going to be like a flash and some of you are going to disappear. And me too, by the way. Prayerfully all of us. When the Lord comes back, it says this in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord will descend with a loud command. Loud. With the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Do you know what happens when a trumpet is blown? Everybody is brought to attention. And then it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. How fun is that? Do you think people are going to miss that? People popping out of graves and you're like, well, what about all the people that are... You realize that's why the Catholic Church didn't cremate anyone, because you really wanted to be intact. The problem is those people aren't intact anyways. Well, the Lord knows how to put stuff together from nothing. He has no problem with that. Now, why would he do that? So that the rest of the world sees that he means what he says. So the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. And that word is harpazo. In the Latin, the word is rapturas. That's where we get rapture from. We'll be caught up to meet the Lord. Listen, to meet the Lord in the air. We will therefore be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Let me ask you, does that encourage you? It all depends on where your treasure is. 
If your treasure's on earth, you're leaving it. If your treasure's in heaven, you're going to it. There's the issue. Now, if you know anything about the way that a traditional Middle Eastern wedding takes place, this is exactly the way it is. A guy comes on the litter. He goes to the girl's house. The elders of the city come together and they bring their torches. And everyone, and then it kind of guides them, if you will. He gets to the girl's house and he pulls her up into his litter for everyone to see, this is my girl. And in the same way, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. The elders, well, that's the dead in Christ. They come in, if you will, they light the way. And then Jesus comes. I guarantee you, when he shows up, no one's going to miss it. And there's something about that that we miss. And you know what? That's like kind of what happens when a body doesn't function properly and it can't get any energy anymore. And it becomes lethargic, comatose. And that's what happens to the body of Christ. The excitement of the Lord's coming. You're like, yeah, but I can't sustain this excitement forever. Believe me, you can. And you won't have to. But I remember when I first found Christ. Now, he found me, if you will, in 1984. I was 19. Don't do the math. A few years later, I opened up the Bible and found him. And from that moment, I knew he was coming from me. And from the moment I knew he was coming from me, I have been just mentally happy about this whole thing. Mental in the sense of mad happy about it. Not because of what I would escape. Although there are, glad, there are some things, let's face it, taxes, so forth. There are some things, ailments, good riddance. Thank you, Lord, they're staying on earth. But if really all I'm excited about is what I leave behind, then I'm missing what the whole point of it is. We will be with him forever. That's the part that encourages us. It doesn't say we'll just be away from that stuff forever, so encourage each other with those words. So hear me on this, church. When some guy says, well, the Lord's coming back on October 7th. Well, he tried that one. Of course, that has been and gone, right? That was the Bible thing. Or, well, the Lord's coming back. The good news is Hugo and I did some research this morning while at breakfast, and Hugo discovered we've got a little bit of time because the next end of the world is, is it the first of next year? January 1st. So um, you have a couple months before the next end of the world. I just think they're great times to celebrate. Happy end of the world! You know, because <coughs> here's the good news. It isn't the end of my world. How about yours? Because my treasure isn't on earth. If all you've got is here, if all you've got is here, that's really bad news. Nah, but not if you know where your family is. Not if you know where your church is. Not if you know where your friends are. Now, here's the good news. You won't have to listen to me forever in eternity. You get to, you get to get taught. If, if All we'll know is well known, so we won't need to be taught. But we get to hang out with Jesus. And I am so excited about the idea that we get to spend eternity on our faces before him. We're not just going to be little naked babies with harps. Praise God for that. But hear me. Here's, this is fundamental. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but when he does come, everybody's going to know it. So don't let anybody lead you astray and talk about, well, you know, I saw where Jesus said this thing, and if we twist it into three languages, we get that Barack Obama is the Antichrist. You know, cut it out. Man, you know what's funny? It's amazing how people are so quick to jump on these like little twisty little Play-Doh things, but they really don't even see the simple truth of Scripture. Listen, 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you're not in darkness so that the day should overtake you as a thief. 
He says, when Jesus shows up, people aren't going to be expecting him. Just the way a thief shows up and you don't expect him. It isn't like we thought, oh, maybe someone will come back and steal the rest of our music here. And the kind of exciting part about that is, praise God they didn't steal you. Because really, stuff can be replaced. You can't. There's only one one. Did you notice there weren't even any hallelujahs? But, you know, you know. Jesus did tell us, though, when we see these crazy things in Luke 21, 28, look up. It doesn't say look around for the Antichrist. It says look up for the Christ. But peace and safety, that's the slogan. Does that surprise you? Isn't that exactly what we're looking for today is peace and safety? We're so tired of the fights. We're so tired of the, of the wars and the discord. And, and, of course, we're so tired of terrorism. We want safety. We're so tired of that. And it's like, have we ever been more conscious, more fearful, more insecure about peace and safety than we have been in this particular? Because when you start seeing that stuff, know this. And the Lord is going to show up and people will be like, yeah, but now I don't need him. Everything's safe because their treasures are on earth. But that is not what God intended. We get to our text here, beloved, and it's important to recognize that Jesus tells us if we can't get past this verses 19, we can't get past verses 19 and 20, the rest of it will be relevant. But here's the problem. When he tells us in 2 Peter 3, 7, that the entire World, earth as we know it, is reserved now for fire. When Second Peter 3.10 tells us that the earth and, listen, all of the works of it will be burned up. How do you feel about that? Are all your works here? Because if you will, like it or not, as John says in 1 John 2.17, that the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And I recognize this is the warning. Every one of these crazy moments, every time an ISIS strikes, every time we see another earthquake, every time we see another mudslide or tornado or hurricane or cyclone or whatever it is, it is a warning shot to remind you that your, that your redemption draws near. And that's really important. Because every one of those times, if you will, it's a moment to slap and wake us up for just a moment and make us ask ourselves this question. No, sincerely, where am I laying on my treasures? Because if another bank gets robbed and another jewelry store gets cleaned out, if another hardcore whatever gets cleaned out and everything is emptied and we had our trust in it, and then the bank goes belly up and another thing goes just empty, And we start thinking, what happened if I put all my whole life in that? What happens next? Every one of these moments is a warning about where our treasure should be. Because one day we're going to wake up and none of that's going to be with us. The question is, is what's really important going to be with you or not? Because that's really the key here. And we can look and we say, you know, if I could just get one more good party in, if I could just get a date with that person once, if I could just... And the kind of things where I guarantee when we stand before God and all this stuff burns will be irrelevant if the time really is that short, how should that inspire us? Interesting. Now, I gotta get, now I'm going to give you a little bit of a... Please hear me. I, I don't normally... But this is my opinion on something. So let me make that clear. This is not gospel truth. This is my opinion. And you're welcome to, like everything, weigh it out. But in Second Peter 3, it tells us that the Lord is not slack as some count slackness. 
but he's patient, long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Okay, I get that. First of all, I like the fact that he's long-suffering, he doesn't want any to perish, and he wants all to come to repentance. But he also tells us, because the context was about the Lord coming back, why he hasn't yet. He tells us the reason he hasn't come back yet is because he doesn't want people to perish. To be honest, he doesn't want you to go through the tribulation. By the way, according to the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, he tells us it is a time of testing the entire earth. Do you know why you don't have to be part of it if you've accepted Christ? Because you've already passed the test. You passed out. Not passed out like you're unconscious. The test will be for those who still haven't made up their mind. I'm really thankful for that. And you'd say, well, that's kind of escapist theology. Hey, if the building's on fire, I hope you're an escapist too. But what if that scripture is exact, says exactly what it says and is exactly right, which I believe? What I get is the reason why the Lord hasn't come back yet, well, let me say it this way. If the Lord came back a year ago, how many of you wouldn't have gone? In other words, you've accepted Christ over the last year. Raise your hand. How about two years ago? Okay, thank you. How about two years ago? See what happens? The moment we start seeing this, what if the Lord came back ten years ago? Which of you wouldn't have gone because you hadn't said yes to Jesus yet? Now look at that for a moment. And the reason I say that is, the Lord knew that you would say yes. So what if, just what if, here's this crazy madcap pastor's idea. What if the Lord knows that there's going to be one moment in time where everyone that could say yes or would say yes will have said yes without something as crazy as a rapture and a tribulation? What if there's one moment where all it takes is for that last person to say yes. And then God says, well, now we're done. Why wait any longer? The last person who would say yes has said yes. Let's whip them. Let's get them out of here. And let's start moving this thing and winding it up. If that is the case, what if that last person is walking the earth right now? What if that last person, all we, they need is the gospel to say yes to, and this whole thing is over? What if that last person's in this room? If you've not said yes to Jesus Christ and you're the last person, stop holding us up. Say yes. Let's get going. There's the idea. Now, with that in mind, here's the whole laydown of it all. You're going to treasure somewhere. And then he goes, and I go, but here's the problem. According to Jeremiah, and we know this, that the heart is desperately wicked. Deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's what he tells us. And that becomes the problem. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> And the reason that becomes the problem is because I can actually be led to believe a lie by my heart. My heart is gifted at lying to me. It knows how to speak a language I will listen to. That's why scripture tells us, by the way, he who follows his heart is a fool. I side with Proverbs over Disney. By the way, just so you know, <clears throat> that's Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. So you know where I'm coming with that. So what does God do? If God knows that we could be deceived and we could say, well, yeah, of course all of my treasure is in heaven. That's really where my heart is. The rest of the chapter, actually, if you will, is a test to see whether that's the truth. Because if we can be deceived to believe that we really treasure heaven more than we really do, well, how do we really know? I mean, if we don't recognize what the Lord is doing here, and it's a classic Hebrew teaching, then what happens is it's almost like trying to chase a jackrabbit. 
It's like this, the lamp of the body is the eye, and you go, how in the world, what, is this a whole new subject? It's like Jesus has, if you will, teaching ADD. Unless, of course, what he really is doing is he's giving us four different things, very clear things, on how to test really where our treasure is. So you really think it's in heaven? I want it to be in heaven more than it is. How about you? I want to want it. And there's our problem. And we have scriptures all over about people like Moses in Hebrews 11.24, who told us, by the way, that he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoying, listen, the passing pleasures of sin. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. It tells us that sin can be pleasurable, but it's very passing. He says, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt because he looked to the reward. He knew there was a reward and he looked to it. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, who has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. Do you get it? Peter knew. A rich man comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, what do I need to do to, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he plays the, the commandments card and the guy's like, yeah, I'm good with that. And we read that Jesus loved him. So he told him the truth. Sometimes the hardest thing to do when you love someone is tell them the truth. But he tells him this. You still lack one thing. Because the guy says, what am I missing? Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Please do not miss that last part. There are people who use that and say, well, see, well, all we need to do is sell everything and give it to a, a, some church. I'll never ask you to do that. That would be nonsense. First of all, Jesus didn't ask you to even give him that. He said, sell it, give it to the poor. The point wasn't that. He says, Come, follow me. What Jesus knew with this guy is that he couldn't do both. He couldn't follow Jesus with all the market stuff that he was carrying around with him. And so he had two choices. He was going to either walk away with his market stuff or he was going to ditch it and follow Jesus. See, all Jesus was saying is, let go of your gods. Let go of your gods and get the right treasure. So our four things, as Jesus now takes us into it. Here's the first of them. They all start with the letter S, by the way. There'll be four of them starting with the letter S. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The first S is how do I... Interesting, by the way, I had to dig into the language a little bit because it seemed like, what in the world? How is it that if, you're, if your eye's bad, I kind of get, what does that mean? If it's blind or if it's what? Interesting, by the way, when it says here, the lamp of the body is the eye. And the idea is simple, that your eyes are going to guide the way that a lamp guides. Of course, we know that from Psalm 119, right? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I know that a lamp or a torch, if you will, is what's going to guide me. It's going to move me forward. And your eyes are going to do that. Your eyes are going one direction. You can't walk long. Not looking where you're going, you're going to run into something. How many times does that happen now that we text all the time? Nobody that you meet, by the way, it's usually a pleasant encounter. Have you noticed that? 
Because I'm like, oh, I was texting too. Nice to meet you. I mean, in the end of it all, you're running into someone and they're giving you that look because they were looking where they were going. But if they were looking where they were going, how did they run into you? Anyways. Yeah, anyways, I'm not. <coughs> the important thing here is, this, okay, so I get the idea that your eyes are going to guide you. And again, this is all about where my treasure is. Where am I really looking? But what's interesting is the word for good. Now, traditionally in the Greek, there are very simple words. To this day, if you were to see somebody Greek, and you'll see we have Greeks in our fellowship, you ask them, Tikanis, that means, how are you doing? What's up? How are you doing? And they'll either say, Kalos or Kakos. Kalos means good. Kakos means bad. Like cacophony means bad sounding. Kalos is good. It's productive. It's beneficial. It's a good thing. That would be the word for basically good. When the book of Genesis was translated into the Greek, the Septuagint, God looked and he said that it was Kalos. It was good. But that's not the word that's used here. Interestingly enough, when I look at this, the word is the word aplos. Try that. Aplos. A is a negative, like theist, believe in God. Atheist, don't believe in God. Gnostic, to know. Agnostic literally means ignoramus. It's what it means, by the way. It means I don't know. So what is, so A is a negative. Pluos, this was the interesting thing. The word pluos literally means to set sail, to voyage. I go, wait a minute. A good eye doesn't set sail? Might I say it this way? A good eye doesn't wander. And there's the idea. He says, if the eye is good, if it's a wander-free eye, then your eye is going to be full of light. And the question isn't just what I'm seeing, is, but what literally in that, and I'm seeing, am I focusing on it? Or am I kind of looking and then looking away? And then am I looking and looking away? Here's the problem. What if one eye was looking at that thing that you think is important, but the other eye was looking elsewhere? Well, then the eyes are going to be dark. Your brain will not be able to process it. And there it becomes our problem. Interesting, by the way, I started studying double vision because I get that that was kind of the idea I was looking at here. What does it look like to have double vision in this? You know what's interesting? It's caused by two basic things. One is brain misfunction. Somewhere in your head, something is not working right, and your brain is then trying to coordinate, and as it tries to coordinate, things get bad. And so your brain tells your eyes, and your eyes are actually not working together with your brain. Your brain is misfunctioning. Literally what happens is your brain is not unified. It's basically being duplicitive. Well, that is definitely one way. Another thing, by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, is the overfunction of your thyroid, or it's often symptomatic of diabetes. And what do those things have in common? Your thyroid produces energy, if you will, sends chemicals to your body to create metabolism. Diabetes is a misfunction, if you will, of the produce of insulin in your body. And I get this. The problem with double vision really is either that your brain isn't all in one place, or... You're too busy full of st- filling yourself with other stimulants. And there's the problem. Interesting, because when that happens, all kinds of things happen. But listen to this. Do you know when your eyes start to form, by the way, the, the, the function of your eyes starts to form as a baby? Four weeks into the pregnancy. Four weeks into the pregnancy, the brain matter starts to grow horns. Antlers, if you will. Those two things that grow become the retinal nerves. Because what God wanted to point out, even from the beginning, is that the way you see comes from your head first. The way that you see comes from what comes up here. And then from that, get this, from that, it's only at this point four millimeters thick. 
But then it starts to sequester other material. And floating at the outside of the embryonic sac, on the outside of it, are these crystalline alkalines. They're transparent. They're the only part that become transparent. And as they metabolize, they become these transparent flakes, if you will, and the brain calls them all together. And as it calls them all together, they form around the outside of these two round balls that are forming now a 10 millimeter stick. And they become your lenses. The brilliance of God and the magnificent mastery of his creation to be able to do this kind of miracle so that your eyes could work. Because it's more than just two things that can take in light. They have to be proper proportion with each other. They have to be properly shaped. The lenses have to be properly shaped over them. Which, by the way, this material can only come from, they come from all over and, you call it, and they all come together and it's the only place. If they were to incorporate anywhere else in the body, it would destroy the rest of the body. How amazing is God? And then those two things happen, but the brain has to start first because your eyes have to be able to log all that data. And if they start to work independently of each other instead of in coordination with each other, something happens in your brain. So your brain does a couple handful, does some things. One of the things it does, by the way, is it, if you will, regulates the liquid in your inner ears, which is your balance. You ever wonder why people get travel sick? See, your eyes are normally looking at something, and it's still. So your eyes are saying, it is still. But the rest of your body's telling your brain, we're moving. And your brain short circuits. It doesn't know what to do with the inner ear liquid at that point. What happens is, your brain is fighting your eyes. And what happens is, you get ill. It is the, you get disoriented. You could lose your train of thought. You needless to say, you get quite nauseous. And all of that happens because your eyes are not in conjunction with each other and with the brain that's supposed to be commanding it. And Jesus says, if your eyes are without sailing, without wandering, every bit of you is going to be full of light. I remind you, in the previous chapter, we were the light of the world and are the light of the world, the only light of the world. And now he says, listen, please hear me. If your eyes are properly focused, what are they focused on? Because as Christians, we know where we're supposed to be looking. The problem is, are we focusing on it? Are we just kind of glancing on it on a Sunday? How many images do we see in our head that we wish we could wipe out because we've wandered and looked at something? Some cases, you don't even have to wander. It just jumps in front of you. You're like, whoa. You know, you're walking downtown, you know, London, and somebody's dressed in a manner, and you're like, oh, can't unsee that. But how many times have we seen something that we wandered on ourselves? If my treasure really is in heaven, my eyes will really find focus on the things of heaven. And that's the first of them. It was Job who said in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why should I look upon a young woman? I think that's a really powerful thought. Then he moves to our second one. So the first one again is our eyes. Controlled, if you will, by our mind. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. And do you realize Jesus tells us there's no middle ground in this? I never thought that I could be hating him. 
I never thought that I could be despising him. The second S, of course, is who do I serve? Who am I surrendering to? Who really has that kind of influence on me? I mean, in the end of it all, am I quick to run to sin looking for somebody to give me some form of license to do it? I mean, I could always find some Internet article out there by some goofball that's going to tell me that what I want to do is right when I know it's not. Is that really where I want to be? Am I the boss? Do you know, really, we've gotten to the place in this world, and you're probably aware of it, that at least in the Western world, Christians should be the only people, and I only say should because we're the, nobody is outside of that, we should be the only people left that actually have a submission to authority. What he tells us, by the way, is it starts with the Lordship of Christ. If we can't take the Lordship of Christ, we won't submit to anyone. And as it's been said, submission isn't submission until you disagree. We could think we're submitting to someone, but all we're doing is they're blessing us. When you really see it is when, of course, you want to do something and they want to do something else. That's where real submission happens. And he tells us, look, you can't serve both. What I don't like about this is what I, what I, I think what I want Jesus to say is, well, you're going to obey one and kind of really you kind of try to ignore the other. You know, I mean, you're going to be hot for one and kind of lukewarm to the other. But that's not what he says, is it? What he says is, like it or not, you're going to hate one. Like it or not, you're going to despise one of these. Like it or not, you're going to look at one and it's going to make you nauseous. Like it or not, you're going to look at one and go, you and me are on opposite sides of the line. Which of those things do I want? The problem is one of the two things is God. And I realize I can't call myself a friend of God if I'm befriending his enemy. Matter of fact, what he tells us is that which is highly regarded by men is an abomination to God. Do you realize what that means? God says what people worship on earth, God hates. It makes them nauseous because it takes people away from him. And he hates that. Who am I really serving? Where is it when it's like, you know, in the end of it all, you know, I knew that I, mean, I was going to spend some time in the Word, I was going to spend some time praying, but then my friends were like, let's go to a party, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I always seem to surrender to that. Well, then ditch your friends and find new ones. Well, I can't do that. Why not? Can't you find friends that will pray with you? Now, I'm not talking about, you, you know, that you don't try to minister to those people, just don't try it alone. If they have that kind of influence over your life, get out. I can tell you about people who've been arrested, shot, killed, stabbed because they were in the wrong place with their friends. My best friend that I ran a dojo with on the night before he was married was killed because he flew off of one of those windy roads because everyone had been drinking and he was too busy not to drink, but he never drank otherwise because he was too busy trying to be healthy. But not that night. He was with guys that wouldn't stop until he did. Is that what you want? You know, it tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. It tells us that you've got to be really careful who you choose because in the end of it all, who influences your life will lead you down a path of either destruction and I, again, it's either the things on earth or the things in heaven. And that's where it is. And he goes, you really want to see where your heart is? Well, then who really has that kind of influence? What is it doing? Does that influence bring you closer to the Lord? Does that influence get you excited about the Lord? Does it bring you into fellowship? Does it get you to a place where you are independently in love with God without in need of anyone but, but, but the Lord? And then your friends are only catering to that? 
Because Jesus says you can't do both. You can't run both directions at the same time. I find it interesting. God made your lips, though you got two of them. You can only kiss one person at the same time. Have you noticed that? Don't try, but you get the idea. Even if your lips are bigger than others, the bottom line is you're still going to wind up kissing one person. He made it that way on purpose. Your eyes have to function as one. But in the end of it all, what we serve, our strength, our strength, is it handed to God? Or somehow do we think we have the final say? I'll do it on my terms, God. Well, then he's not the Lord. In the end of it all, we hand ourselves to the Lord and say, your will be done, not mine. And if we play this, my will, not yours, he's not the Lord the way he needs to be in your life or mine. He tells us you can't serve both God and mammon. Mammon, by the way, was the God of money or the love of money. He says you can't chase. And I get it. Again, remember, the whole idea of it is things on earth, things in heaven. If all I'm chasing in the end of it all is to love more money, to get more stuff, to feel more powerful, to get more freedom on earth. But in the end of it all, the moment that this whole thing burns, I'm left with nothing but ashes. He says, then don't even pretend that you're treasuring heaven like you should be or laying treasures there. Now, it tells us again that the whole world will and the universe is reserved for fire. So I like to tell people I do believe in the Big Bang. They just have it on the wrong side. When the world ends, it will end with a Big Bang. And you won't have to say, I think it's going to be a meteor, meteor or a meteor, but a meteor, that would be worse too. And... Whatever it is, in the end of it all, the Lord's going to come back at his people. Then he's going to push everybody to the wall and make them make a choice about whether he's going to be their Lord or not. That's that time of tribulation. That's the purpose of it. Isn't God just punish? I mean, if God wanted to punish people, why didn't he just send them to hell? The whole purpose of the tribulation in the book of Revelation is to make life so rough that everything you could worship falls apart just like God did to Egypt. So the only thing left is to either say yes to God or shake your fist at him one last time and say, it doesn't matter what you do, I won't say yes to you. At which point, there'll be no doubt where everyone's going to go. And you know why he does that? Because he loves people and he doesn't want them to perish. I mean, if he wanted to perish, he could have sent us all to hell. That was justice. But that's not what he did. So, what do I see? Where do I serve? Verse 25, or third of four. Therefore I say, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, or your body more than clothing? He's going to give us two challenges. The third S, and this is the worst of them, is, in this sense, is stress. What are you stressing over? And the problem is, me just telling you it's a sin to stress will make you stress over stressing. You're like, I'm not sure if I'm stressing. Am I stressing over stressing? St-? And then you start stressing. You're like, oh, I know, I'm sitting. I mean, in the end of all, but what's the opposite of that? Well, what Jesus says in Matthew 11:26, when he says, Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You'll either be stressed or you will get rest. The issue is, who are you coming to? Interesting. I did a little bit of studying on this. According to, by the way, health and safety, 10.4 million workdays are lost annually in the UK due to illness that they call stress-related. 
According to your central nervous and endocrine systems, by the way, your central nervous reacts with what's called fight or flight. That's what God built within you so that if the dog wants to bite you, you know how to run away from it. Your body produces, well, your adrenal gland produces two things, by the way. It produces adrenaline and cortisone. And it does that basically to get you the way out. So what happens if your body starts producing these things, but there's no immediate emergency? And what stress does is keeps things at a constant state of high alert. You know what happens? Is your body doesn't know how to rest. You can't sleep. You become highly agitated. You start to curl up. We'll talk about it from a muscular perspective here in a moment. But your brain has to start figuring this out. Panic attacks. Have you heard the term? What happens? Your body is starting to treat like something is happening that you need to go in fight and flight mode for, but there's nothing happening around you to, to validate that. So your brain's going to do one of two things. It's going to internalize, and then you're going to go, oh my goodness, I'm freaking out. Or it's going to make something up just to try to validate the purpose for this going on inside of you. Neither one of those is healthy. And that can happen simply by stressing. And again, stressing is not coming to the Lord with it, but taking it into your own hands and say, I'll carry this one myself. So your central nervous system starts to break down. Your hypothalamus inside of your brain starts to tell your adrenal gland, let's start getting that cortisone out, let's start getting that adrenaline out, and that just makes things rick. That makes them really bad, and your thyroid starts to overwork, and I think, wait a minute, when your thyroid starts to overwork, don't you get, can't you get double vision? As that happens, your heart starts to run fast, and as your heart starts to run fast, that intensifies your need for your oxygen distribution. So your respiratory starts to go. And if you have any problems with asthma, it highly exaggerates that problem. But the problem as well is it starts to cause, of course, vascular constriction. In other words, your veins start to get smaller because of that tension, and that creates hypertension. Tension, hypertension. And that, of course, we know as high blood pressure. Because of what? Because we're staring at the problem instead of throwing it at the Lord. As a result of that, your digestive system starts to shut. It produces extra glucose, which will create type 2 diabetes, another reason for double vision. It creates things like reflux, bad gas, that kind of stuff. Your muscular system, of course, functions basically between the salts that are the ions that are carried through salt through your body, and your muscles are intended to constrict and relax and constrict and relax. But have you ever seen these guys and they're peacocking when a cute girl comes onto the train and they're kind of talking with their friends, but now they're grabbing a hold of something and they're just flexing now, right? You know, it's amazing now all of a sudden. The fun part is they have to flex as long as she's on the train, right? And they have to try to do it naturally. So they're like, right? And they're like, like now like the train's like, like falling off the rails and gone off a bridge. And they're okay. Well, you know, yeah, you know, try, not, try to talk normal. Yeah, okay, oh, things are great. Yeah, they're great. Right? And, all this, and you know what happens is your body cannot function in that state because the tendons that have to hold those things in that position start to get to a place where they swell up, and that's called tendonitis. And you know why that happens? Because your body's freaking out. It's running. And so what happens is your muscles start to flex. Your, your tendons then say, okay, well, I guess we're supposed to do this. And they do that. And sooner or later, what happens is you start to walk around like this because your tendons can't loosen up anymore. Your muscles may even start to relax, but your tendons can't because your brain still says, freak out! And not like that, freak out! Kind of, but not like really bad freak out. So your muscles then form crystallites, your tendons swell up, 
And all that cortisol that's produced from your adrenal glands then compromises your immune system because at first it sends it out on high alert, but you're aware that your autoimmune system, if it has nothing to fight, starts to fight itself. And then you got all kinds of sick. Though there was no even sickness coming at you, it just made a sickness, so it had some work to do. It's sort of like all the armies are out anyway, so they had to find something to shoot. And all this happened because we're not resting in the Lord. And I know for some of us, we are addicted to stressing. We're addicted to it. And you know why? We get so caught up on the things of earth. You see, things in heaven, I know God's in control. And if I know God's in control, I could stop worrying about it. Like my family and their walk with God. You guys and your walk with God. People being crazy around us. Their walk are not with God. When it looks from an eternal perspective, I know God's in control. I mean, I want to see people come to know the Lord. I want to see you grow. I want to see me grow. I want to see this church grow. Not like, hey, let's just fill this room full of people. But more so, I want to see you grow in the sense that you're solid in your faith, not led astray by some kook that just told you that the asteroid's going to kill everything and Jesus showed up a week ago or whatever. But I mean, really where we're, and you realize, when, we, when our eyes are focused on the things of this world, we're going to freak out. And the reason is because the moth could come in any moment, the rust could come when we're not looking, or the thief can show up. We can't just protect anything that well. And we lay awake at night, and we wonder why we're such a mess. You know what's interesting? <clears throat> Excuse me. According to the Mayo Clinic, 78% of the ailments people experience in two years of their life are shortened due to stress. That's the Mayo Clinic. And Jesus says, you know, you're freaking out about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. You know, the crazy thing is we freak out over other things, don't we? When was the last time you freaked out about what you were going to eat? When was the last time you freaked out because you thought, I'll have no clothes to wear? Now, I'm not talking about I have no clothes that I like or I look good in to wear. Now, I don't know. Well, something, I mean, I pull things off the hanger wrong because it looks so good on the hanger. And then I pull it off. I break it somehow. And then I put it on and it just, it broke. It doesn't look as good anymore. Something clearly is wrong with the way I'm pulling things off a hanger. But I'm not going to freeze anytime soon. I'm not going to be naked anytime soon. We can all rest ball for that. But can you imagine what we're freaking out about? When was the last time? And this is, I mean, Jesus says these are things that are basic necessities. Eating, drinking, having something to wear. Those are basic necessities. Could you imagine Jesus trying to tell us, stop freaking out about your phone service? about whether or not your internet is too slow. I mean, think about the things we freak out about. Because, you know, if our mind's on eternity, that doesn't mean we don't react to an emergency. We have a couple, they wake up in the middle of the night and they smell gas. I mean, like natural gas. And I mean by that, get it? They need to get out of the house. But if your mind is resting your heart and your spirit are resting, your soul is resting because you know that eternity is handled, you're a clearer to handle the emergency in front of you. Could you imagine if that moment you're thinking, oh no, what if I lose my laptop? What if I lose my phone? What if our phone service goes down? What if, you know, I remember once we had talked about what would happen if things really got rough and the, and the storms really hit. And my, my youngest daughter says, 
What if there's no internet? What if there's no Wi-Fi? And that was like, that was a genuine concern. I'm like, like we couldn't call for help out the door? This is where we're at now. We made ourselves a mess. Because our treasures are on earth after all, if we're honest. And there's the problem. Hey man, when my eyes are, and my heart and my soul are really on God, my strength to serve are on God in heaven, it's amazing because you'll always find a good excuse to be a bad person. Have you learned that? To do bad things to yourself. You'll always find a, an excuse to stress. Matter of fact, it's such a big issue. Jesus will go to one more and then he'll go back to it. And this is what he says. He gives two commands in it, by the way. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. The word, by the way, is the emblepo. Emblepo literally means to beware of. To grab up. Don't just kind of overlook. And Jesus, imagine, Jesus is speaking to a bunch of guys while birds are around. And he says, now stop everything. In the middle of my message, not mine, by the way, I'm almost done. But in the middle of my message, Jesus is saying, now stop. No, go and observe a bird. Just go look. Do you see them planting? Do you see them checking the stocks? Do you see them trying to fly to a higher branch to get better phone service? Do you see them sowing or reaping? Clearly he's speaking about food now, right? He says, but your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you more value than they are? Jesus tells us, by the way, in Matthew and in Luke, Matthew 10:29, and in Luke 12, 6, the two sparrows are sold for a copper coin and five sparrows, so you can get a deal on that, for two copper coins. And he says, yet yeah, none of them fall to the ground without God taking notice. And I used to think when it says fall to the ground, my first thought is there's a sparrow that like, you know, there's a sparrow and it's like sweet, sweet, ah, and then it falls over and dies and God's like, note that. <clears throat> and what I realized is, you ever see a sparrow? They're terrible pilots. I mean, they're like a beach ball trying to land. So what happens is they kind of get to the air, they come down and they're like, boing, 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 and it's like, they're fun to watch, because they're kind of like a squirrel with wings. And they just can't seem to just be like, and then land, you know? Boy, I tell you, if you had to ride a bird and you were like Ant-Man, do not pick a sparrow. And the reason I say that, when a sparrow lands, it takes him probably 30, 50 tries if he's really trying to do it well. And God take a note of every time it bounced like that. And he goes, you can buy a couple of these things for a penny. And he goes, and so what? So you could do what with it? Do you cook them in a pie? He goes, and I died for you. I mean, I paid everything. I gave up everything I had to purchase you. How in the world could you think that you could even possibly compare to this and what, I think what Jesus is genuinely saying, if we're being honest, he goes, you don't even think I care for you as much as I do that. Like that thing is like just trying to land. It's bouncing, it's tripping all over the place. It's clearly being clumsy. And I notice every one of those attempts, I know every one of those moments when it does something clumsy, and yet you think that you're fearful to take anything unless it's a big, massive ordeal to me. Because I'm not noticing. I know every hair in your head is the very next thing Jesus says, by the way, in Luke. Because don't you see how important? Listen, 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 listen. Don't you see how important you are to me? Don't you see how precious you are to me? Are you like, well, you bounced a few times today. You tried to land and you didn't land well. 
Good thing God's really busy running the universe. I said, you're infinitely more precious than this. I mean, if there's anybody that should be stressing, it should be God. But he isn't. He goes, how could you guys stress over this? But then he goes one step beyond all of that. He goes, okay, so the whole food thing, he goes, look at if I take care of them, why don't I take care of you? But, but God, I've, I've seen the bills. Have you ever tried to do the math? Every month my math doesn't work. And I don't think I'm that bad at maths. But somehow the money we get in and the bills that come in, the bills are always bigger, but somehow it all seems to get paid. I don't get it. Good thing is they get it. Anyways, so he says in verse 27, which of you by worrying could add one cubit to a statue? Cubits a foot and a half, if you will, a half a meter. I think, well, interesting. Because he moves into clothing because then he says, so then, like you're wearing clothing to be taller. People have done that since the 70s, haven't they? Why? Well, traditionally, a taller person gets greater honor. No, that's not the case in this particular generation. Sad to say. But the idea was, is the higher something was considered up, the more that people revered it. That's why a king's head always had to be above his subjects. And there are too many, many fact, in many Asian cultures today, that still is the case. And if a king wants to sit down, you're laying prostrate just to make sure your head doesn't go above it. He's like, you really think that all of that stress, all of that time plotting that stuff in your head, all of that determination in your head has done anything to get you any more honor? Has it gotten you any farther at all? You're trying to run and you're strapping weights to your legs. Has that helped you at all? Because you know, if you'd have handed it to me in the first place, here's the problem. Listen, 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 because i got to go for the throat on this. You know how this plays out. You wake up in the morning and things are happening. And you've got to get this done and you've got to get that done. And it's on your list. And you're like, oh, I don't have time to read. I don't have time to pray today because i got to get these things done. And what happens is you just strapped all the stuff to your legs and then you try to run, right? <clears throat> and you're like, i got to freak out. Oh, I laid awake figuring out how I'm going to get all this done. Instead of saying, you know what, God, I'm going to hand it all to you first. I'm going to lay it all down to you first. And as I lay it down to you first... Then put things in order. Have you ever seen those days? I mean, how many of those days do we have to have where we really do that right? And everything works its way out and we have time to spare? And then those days where we don't give God the time and we're still killing ourselves at midnight? How many times do we have to do that and still not figure that out? How daft can we really be? He's like, man, listen, this is not for me. This is for you. You know why you're stressing? Because you're not with me like you should be. If you come to me, I'll give you rest. And what I love, the difference between Jesus and everything else, as everything else is, if I could just empty myself of the problem, it's still going to exist. God says, why don't you just hand the problem to me? You're not emptying yourself of the problem, you're dealing with it. That's why I love that he says, cast our cares before God. It doesn't say lift them up, aren't you thankful? Have you ever had a care that's so heavy you could barely do anything with it? God says, well, since it's so heavy, why don't you just throw it down at my feet? You could do that, right? I invented gravity for that purpose. He goes, no, no, you really think that staying awake is going to do you any better? Freaking out about this? But you're like, you don't understand the consequences. And if we take one wrong step, we're out of the country. If we take one wrong step, this is going to happen. If we take one wrong step, I'm out of the house. I'm kicked out of this thing. I lose whatever. He's like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you know who's supposed to take care of you, then why do you... You know what the problem is? 
is the moment God does provide, we don't even give him credit, do we? We just go on to the next thing to freak out about. God's like, you are so addicted to your problems. You can't even give me the glory for the things I've already shown up in. And that's why you can't even see the new one. So then God says this in verse 28, consider the lilies of the field. Now, this is a different word than the last one where he's like, stare at it, observe this. <coughs> Excuse me. The word is katamantano. Katamantano, by the way, literally means to learn through this. He goes, why don't you learn from a lily? Study a lily and learn from it. Have you ever seen a lily? I mean, a beautiful Easter lily that blossoms up. You know what? The cool thing is, could you imagine? This is Jesus speaking. He could have said, do you see that beautiful thing? I did that. But you didn't. It's like, I mean, you see a field and it's dirt. Then it turns green a little bit. And then the lilies come. Did you ever see that field? And this is one of the things I love about England. I love hopping on a train and going through one of those beautiful countrysides where all of a sudden my eyes start to hurt from the yellow on a field. You know what I'm talking about. And you look and you realize nobody planted that but God. And you see these amazing, beautiful, verdant fields. And you look at them and you realize God's like, I did that without your help. He goes, do you see that beautiful lily? You've done nothing to make that lily like that. Because I did that by myself. But Solomon, on his best day, didn't look as good as that. It didn't matter what Armani he put on. It didn't matter how tight he was looking. God's like, I don't even have to sweat and I can make that happen. He goes, wait till you see the crab nebulae. Wait till you see what I've done with the universe. You haven't even gotten there yet. He goes, man, I paint the sky colors you can't even dream of. And you're freaking out because somehow, you know why? Because you put it upon, listen, you've put it upon yourself, not upon him. And there's the problem. Your whole soul is messed. Finally. So he says then, so God closed the grass of the field, which I remind you is temporary. That's where we started this. Today is tomorrow thrown in the oven. It's kindling for a fire. Will you not much more clothe you, O you a little faith? Interesting, by the way, every time in Matthew Jesus speaks of it beyond this, he's on water. He'll do it in a storm in Matthew 8 that he calms. He'll do it when Peter starts to sink in Matthew 14. And then he's on a boat and telling them to beware of the bread of the Pharisees or the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 16. Every time on water, and I get this, it's like I can calm these storms. I can get above this thing and I can take you with me. Why are you freaking out? So what do you think? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Because even the unbelievers, the Gentiles seek after this. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. But this is what I'm telling you to do. And this is a command, verse 33. Seek first kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek to be right with me. And all these things, these things, what? What you eat, what you, what you drink, what you wear. Don't worry about those things. That's my job. Your job is the last S. What am I seeking? Interesting. To seek is different, by the way, now from to see. What catches my eye? What am I really trying to catch my eyes on? To seek now, by the way, the word zetacho literally means, if you will, to make hot pursuit, to make hard effort to get. Hey, you know, every person's an opportunist on what's important to them. That moment when that seat finally got up and you sat next to her because now's the Zach. I remember that. Man, I'd be working, at, you know, 
It was like, man, when my wife and I were engaged, man, we were, it was crazy. I was working about 60, 70 plus hours a week. We're leading worship. I led worship the day after we got married at our church. We got a round of applause. I'm not sure what that was about. But uh, I just remember it was like I really wanted my wife to know every break moment that I had. I remember once I called and my wife was really scared. At the time, she wasn't my wife. She was really scared. Uh, something had happened. Her father had gotten really, really ill. And you could tell she was really torn up about it. And then it was sort of like I called back and it was busy and it was busy forever. And I'm like, i got to go see this girl. But I didn't have a car. My friend had a bike, but it didn't even have a seat. It was a 40-something, 50-minute uh, you know, drive through the city streets of, uh, of Southern California. It was a two-and-a-half to four-hour drive on a bike. But off I went. And as you would know it, without a seat, an hour into it, and it starts to rain. Awesome. It's now three in the morning, and I'm calling my wife with a Dunkin' Donuts in my hand, trying to be cool, but asking her if she would pick me up, right? But I'm trying not to say that, right? <laughs> so I'm calling her. I'm waking her up now. The phone finally is, is available. Those are, these are the days. These were the days before cell phones. And so you had to go to a, you know, and I'm like, hi, um, by the way, I'm just Tony, and I'm probably about a mile away from your house now. It's raining. I'm on a bike. Got some donuts. I just wanted to make sure you're okay. I'm coming to see you. She goes, okay. All right. I guess I get to finish the job. But I remember and I would take any opportunity I could to be with her. Now it's just a lot easier. I don't think my daughters know the times that I try to make myself available to them. Because I just love being with them. Because what's really important, you become an opportunist. You seek opportunities. Can you imagine us seeking opportunity to share Jesus with someone? Seeking opportunity to bless a brother or a sister? Is that what I'm seeking? seeking moments to get away with the Lord and just to read with him and pray with him, walk with him, seeking those little date times with God. Hey, when you're in love, you do that. On the other side of it, those moments when I'm really seeking to see when that thing finally gets on sale, seeking to figure out how I can get ahead in some situation, what am I really seeking? Huh. Because he tells us in this that if I'm willing to seek what I really should, I won't have a problem with this. And then I look at this and I think, now, wait a minute. I'm looking at these four things. What am I really seeing? How am I really, or what am I really serving? Where am I really stressing? Am I really stressing? And what am I really seeking? And I'm told the four things and I go, wait a minute. But I'm to love the Lord with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I go, wait a minute. They fit perfectly in these four things. So if I love the Lord with all of my heart, then I start saying, well, where are my real appetites? What are the things I'm really seeking? What's really important to me? It'll be in my heart. As my mind, I will be thinking about what I'm entertaining, and I'm thinking as with my mind. I go, okay, well, wait a minute here. Okay, well, as my mind controls my eyes, what am I really seeing? Am I really focusing? Or is my mind in a thousand places? As I look at my strength, and I think, well, wait a minute. My strength, that's where I'm serving. And my soul, that's whether I'm stressing. And if I love him with all four of those things, this won't even be a topic. I'll be looking and going, God, this all works out. So what's interesting is notice he goes back to stressing in the last verse so we can close this. 
He says, so why do you worry about tomorrow? Because, you know, tomorrow, well, it'll have its own issues. By the way, does that make you worry? Don't worry, there'll be other things to worry about tomorrow. What? What? What is it? He goes like, why would I tell you now? You have other things you're worrying about right now. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know how that works? <laughs> it works with two words, and the words are, what if? That's how I worry about tomorrow. How about you? We kill ourselves with what ifs. You know what what ifs are? They're daggers we stick into ourselves with an imaginary assailant <clears throat> that always never, almost always never seems to show up. Nobody ever pessimist. I mean, nobody ever optimistically what ifs. Have you ever noticed that? We are gifted at pessimistically what if. What if when I walk out of this building, I get run over by a car? Maybe it's a taxi. That's even more of an ounce. What if a total stranger just comes over to you and gives you a 20-pound note? Well, that's crazy. Nobody does that. Actually, it's about the same ratio. I don't know if you're aware of that. Nobody thinks that. What if somebody comes to my door and starts assaulting my family? I could lay awake at night practicing my moves in my head. That guy comes through the door. I know how I'm getting him down. Well, what if I wake up in the morning, actually, somebody says, hey, I just want to take you and make you breakfast. Oh, I didn't think of that one. Should we not be the most optimistic people on the planet? Because people go, what if the world ends? And you go, well, it's going (laughs) to. Have a nice day. Be warmed and filled. But what if there was a place waiting for you where you could actually know that it couldn't be corrupted, couldn't be stolen, couldn't be abused, couldn't be vandalized? You can send all your stuff there. I get this image in my head of a bunch of homeless people playing Monopoly. That's what this world's like. In the end of it all, no matter how how many hotels you put on boardwalk, you're still homeless. Because it doesn't matter what you get here in the end of it all, the game's going to close up soon. And when the game does close up, then you have to deal with real life. So where are we at? Are we decorating our hotel room? We've done real well with it, but knowing sooner or later, we've lived there long enough now, we've forgotten that someday we're going to have to check out. Beloved, hear me on this as we go to prayer. You are the most valuable thing to God on earth and in the universe. Anywhere. You were the most important thing to God everywhere. Only you did he die for. People. Human beings. Jesus bled and died a torturous, horrible death so that every one of our wicked, horrible, cruel, nasty things, filthy things, could be properly paid for. He volunteered to do that. And he did that because he'd rather die than live without you. He wants you that bad. That's how valuable you are. And he went and he came to earth, tempted in every way, yet without sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Here's the worst part. You got the payoff, that temporary pleasure of sin. He got the bill. And he took every beating, every blow, and he paid for it, died on that cross. And just like Scripture promised, on the third day rose again. And he did that so that he could do more than just take away your sin, but give you a brand new life under his lordship, where you don't have to live in stress anymore. But you can live in his rest. So are you tired? Are you worked up? Are you like constantly in the need, by the way, now of permanently employing a masseuse? Are you in the place today where you're constantly in a place where, to be honest, having a Luke around you right now would be a good idea because you're probably going to have another ailment by the end of this, you know, by the time the, the night's over? Really? What if today God commandeer our focus so we see And then in that, our heart would be one so that we would serve him. And as we serve him, 
would no longer be stressed. Because he, our master, is the almighty. Have you forgotten? And in that then, seek first his kingdom, his rightness. And let him do his job. Let him give to you what he's supposed to. Be responsible to seek the things he's called us to seek. Let's get out of his way. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to give you that opportunity here now. But if you have, today, isn't this whole thing really just about what really is important? Imagine if we walked out of here with a new resolution, making the things of God important and laying up our treasures in heaven. Here, let everything God gives you be used to bless someone else. Because if the things in heaven are what matters, we won't hold on so darn tight to the things we hold on to here. Because they all belong to him anyways. Well, then use them to bless. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful text. Thank you for the privilege of being able to say yes to you another day. Lord, I recognize out of the love you give us this message. I pray today, Lord, for every person who has said yes to you, that we'll take these two simple exhortations sometime today and observe a bird and just watch how it's fed, how it takes care of itself. It's so carefree. And I recognize there are moments in my life where my children felt carefree. They didn't feel like the world was on their shoulders. They felt safe. Because they knew that their dad loved them and he was capable of keeping them safe. As a pastor, you know that's my passion here. For this flock to be safe. And being safe that they would be loved. That they would feel safe enough to surrender to you completely. Lord, I recognize that if I can't demonstrate that as you as my father, how in the world can anyone else that somehow is supposed to be influenced by my own example? So today, here in this room right now, would you please do your work? Lord, I can stress over people. I can stress over things. And I'm not even a a natural stressor. So I can't even imagine those who are. But tonight, well, today, I don't know how long I've gone, but today, <coughs> I pray, Lord, you would deburden us. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I recognize you have no intention of us living this heavily weighed down, ill-fitting, chafing life, but rather a life more abundant. So today, Lord, put our hearts in the right place by putting our treasures in the right place. Make what's really important, important. You would now work in our hearts in that. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've not said yes to this gift of Jesus, or maybe you're not sure, you can be sure now. I pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, I ask you to have a confident and resounding amen. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. 
Do you so love me that you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross for me, to pay my price, so that all my sins could be punished upon him and not on me? And when he died, my bill was paid. And just like Scripture promised, on the third day he rose again. And as on the third day he rose again, he challenges me now to receive that gift and to confess him as the Lord of my life. And so I say yes. I say yes to Jesus and his gift, confessing him as my Lord and Savior. I'm yours now. In Jesus' name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.